Won't you turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah, second last book of the Old Testament, to Zechariah. We look today at verse 18 to 21, and this is the four horns and the craftsmen. And I'm really praying that the Lord will help me to make it make sense to you. It is a, it's glorious to see the way that our Lord has got his hands over all of history and has his hands over all of the present and even over the future. And one of the areas that this really would make an impact to the people of Zechariah's day is that they were being called to return to the Lord. Of course, they'd now returned to the land. 16 years before this, they'd stopped the building project of the temple and they needed to get back to work with us. And Zechariah was preaching for them to get back to work and also to then serve the Lord in their day. So we're going to be delving into this profound vision of Zechariah, a vision that's not only provided reassurance for the people of his time, but it also continues to echo to you and I. Isn't it lovely to hear a baby? Praise the Lord. Hey, that's, that's life in our church. And we give thanks to the Lord for all of the little ones. And when they preach with me, praise God that they preach with me. We're excited about that. So, we, we find this vision not just echoing in his day, but also for us as well. We see God's divine intervention. We also see God's justice. We see God's restoration of the people of Israel. And this vision of the four horns and the four craftsmen holds a real vital place in the grand tapestry of the book of Zechariah, which is a book that is woven together with various themes of hope and renewal and God's unending faithfulness towards the people of Israel. This is difficult for us to come at because we're looking at a time that is more than 400 years before Christ, this is around 520 BC. And so when we look at this, we, it's difficult to get your mind into the, the setting of that time. But you can imagine there's been about 50,000 Jews that have returned to the land. And they'd been out of the land for at least 70 years. Some of them, some of their forefathers had been out of the land even longer because there was almost... 70 years before that, that we have the conquering um, of 70 years before Jerusalem fell, we have the conquering of the northern tribes of Israel. And so there's actually a large chunk of their history um, spanning before this period. And here you've got only about 50,000 that return. And they've faced with so much opposition, they came back with great vigor under Zerubbabel and they began to rebuild and they did the foundations of the temple but then they faced so much opposition that they stopped with the building project and it's about 16 years later this is a group of people that don't even have city walls any longer in Jerusalem and yet God was busy putting them back into the land and it would take them about 70 years to rebuild the land and so that's kind of where we're at we're at this midpoint where there'd been the 70 years of captivity, and now you've got this prophecy by Zechariah, which is coming about a year after Daniel realizes, hey, this is now the time, and he's praying. He's asking God to send back the people to the land. And so you've got Zechariah, a young man, busy prophesying. You've got Daniel back in Babylon with Darius, and he's probably nearing the 90s and the end part of his life, and you've got now a new prophet on the scene, in a sense. 
And that's Zechariah. And a young man now who has gone back, he would have been born in Babylonia, the broader area of where Babylon was. And he's now gone back and he's one of those 50,000 as such, but probably in his early 20s even, maybe even early 30s of his life, that is now busy ministering there. And he's telling them, return to the Lord. They've returned to the land, but they need to return to the Lord. They need to set him as their priority. They need to seek him and do what he commands, despite all of the odds. And in God's marvelous mercy, they actually begin that work again. And they finish it a few years later. So this is where we're at. And so even this prophecy fits into that broader theme of God really working on the people to show them they can trust him. And if they can trust him, then they will obey him because that's what believing faith is part of. It's trusting him in such a way that you actually obey him. So if there's a grand message of this message that we're looking at in verse 18 to 21 is this. Dear Christian, you can trust Yahweh God and you can you can live your life in obedience to him. And you should because of how marvelous he is. He holds your life in his hands. And he holds history in his hands. Some of the things that we see happening in our lifetime, even from the beginning of last month, things that happened in Israel, it seems as though we're living through some biblical times, doesn't it? And you see all of the wars and the rumors of wars, and you see all of the destruction, and we are confronted with this daily. Did you know that there is one who holds the world in his hands? And he holds the past, He holds the future and he holds you today. So get on with serving him. Don't be crippled with fear. Don't be crippled into such a position that you become like a paralyzed individual that does not do what God had called you to do. And echoing even what we had on the family fellowship with regard to Esther. Now is your time to honor the Lord today with your obedience to him. And if you will not, he will raise up somebody else. Are you going to get busy with what God has called you to do? And you have a specific purpose, even inside of this body of believers at Benoni Bible Church. God has so made you perfectly to fit the very place that he would have you fit in this body of believers so that Christ would be honored. Do what he has called you to do. And that's part of what this hope would bring to the people in Zechariah's day. They needed to get busy with The daily grind of putting one brick on top of another brick. That's what God was calling them to. And because God had called them to that, they were glorifying God in doing that. And we need to realize that, dear brothers and sisters. If God commands you to stand in the corner at attention, and it is God who calls you to do that, and you do that, then you are honoring him just as much as a general of an army that rushes into battle headlong because Jesus said charge. Doing what God called you to do, and doing it is honoring to him. Just like in Zechariah's day, when these people were to lay one brick upon another. They didn't know that it would only be almost 70 years later that Nehemiah would finish the walls of Jerusalem. They didn't know how they were going to get all the provision. They didn't know how all of tomorrow was going to work out. But you know what believing faith did in them? It caused them to lay one brick on another and to honor the Lord. 
So look with me at Zechariah 1 verse 18 to 21, and then we'll pray and then get into the exposition of this text. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now mark there, very importantly, which have scattered. This is speaking in the past tense about four horns that were involved in scattering Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then Yahweh showed me four horses. Four, sorry, four craftsmen. Importantly as well, this is Yahweh showing this to Zechariah. Yahweh showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. But these craftsmen, there's a contrary word there, but this is different to those horns. These craftsmen have been set up. These craftsmen have come to cause them to tremble, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Lord, we pray that as we come to your word, by your Holy Spirit, that you would open up the truths of your word to us and that you would so quicken our own hearts towards you that we would be obedient, that we would honor you in our day that we would take up and that we would build alongside you, the one that builds the church, that we would be the builders that you've called us to be in our day, laying one brick, as it were, upon another. May we, O Lord, be filled with a great passion for your glory. May we be charged up by your word, because your word is truth. And may you continue to work in us. Thank you for the miracles that we see in the past, that we can look at a, a Bible that's filled with such marvelous fact. And we can see the ways in which you looked after Israel, even in judgment. And you looked after Israel in the way in which you rebuilt it. So we thank you so much, Lord. And we pray that we would be filled with hope and that you would cause us to be a people that live to your glory. Fill us with your joy. Fill us with your peace. Cause us to be saints who dwell in the land in such a way that we live in a, in a way that would honor you in our generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's see this in a few sections. Firstly, the understanding of the vision, and that's the four horns and then the four craftsmen in verse 18 to 21. In verse 18 and 19a, we have the symbolism of four horns. Now, often when horns were spoken of, it speaks about that which was almost indestructible, that which was powerful, either nations or kings. In particular, I believe that this is speaking about kings, but we see four horns representing oppressive powers of the past, powers that were raised up with the specific purpose of judgment to Israel. But they often, as we saw this in the vision before this, they went further even than what God had allowed them to go. And so these horns signify at least the nation heads or the nations that had scattered God's people and inflicted pain and suffering on God's people. This symbolism of the horns is prevalent within the Bible, representing powerful kingdoms or kings. And so in Zechariah's vision, these horns were more than just mere imaginary kind of a horns that he sees in a vision. It actually speaks about specific oppressive powers that had wreaked havoc amongst God's people. 
So let's travel back in time as we seek to understand some of this. And, and part of what I want to also just maybe give a bit of a cautionary element to this is that even when we study biblical prophecy and when we when we prepare to preach an expositional sermon, one of the things which I even call on those that I would teach to do exposition is you want to first study the text yourself. You want to put aside questions that you have for the text and you want to work on a manuscript yourself before you even consult commentaries. But yes, where I want to give you something of a caution. And then I would say to students, well, you need to go and look in the commentaries to make sure that you're not saying something new that others have not said. And so here's the caution that I'm giving you. I'm saying something that I haven't read in a commentary today when it comes to what I'm seeing with what I believe are the four horns. But the major purpose of this, whether we see it as four kingdoms or whether we see it as four individuals, is that God is over the past and the, the fact that God was over even the ways in which Israel was scattered. He was over that. And then he's also over their present and their future, because that's part of what Zechariah is speaking to. Now, part of their future that actually would even come to fruition about 70 years later than Zechariah with the rebuilding fully of Jerusalem and the repopulation of Israel. By the time that our Lord Jesus would be upon the scene, that's something of the past for us that we look back at. But what is it that God was actually challenging the people of Zechariah's day with is an eternal truth. He is over the past, he is over the future, and therefore he owns your present. How are you going to serve him? And that's the major point. So I don't want you to miss the major point amidst all of the other things that we're going to look at, and I'm hoping that you will see it with me. But in 722 BC, the formidable Assyrian Empire often symbolized by horns in biblical imagery. For example, in Isaiah 5, verse 26 to 30, listen to what Isaiah sees regarding the Assyrians. Now, remember that Isaiah was prophesying at a time before the fall of the northern tribes of Israel. And so he's prophesying about the coming Assyrians that would come. And we see in our prophecy in Zechariah that it includes Israel. It speaks about Judah, Israel, Jerusalem. So he's including all the 12 tribes. He's not just speaking about Judah and Jerusalem. He's speaking about those that scattered even Israel. And so we have to go back and say, well, who was part of scattering Israel? Well, the Assyrians were part of scattering Israel. Look at Isaiah 5, 26 to 30. It says this, He will also lift up a standard to the, to the distant nations and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. And behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one in it is weary or stumbles. None slumber or sleeps. Nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp and all its bows are bent. The hooves of its horses seem like flint and its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. It roars. It, its roaring is like a lioness and it roars like young lions. It growls and seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it. And it will growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. That's speaking about the ruthlessness of the Assyrian Empire that was coming to crush Israel. 
and they conquered the northern tribes of Israel. Yet it's crucial to note at this point, in 722, the northern tribes are dragged away to Assyria. But this is a prolonged war as they go around all of Judah and they knock out all the cities of Judah. They wipe out most of the land of Judah and they come and they besiege Jerusalem. And that takes us to 701 BC. Now remember when we're speaking about BC, it is going down towards zero. So you have 722 is further, and then you've got 21 years later, 701 BC. Now they're besieging Jerusalem. It's the only city left. It's the last bastion of Judaism under the Assyrians. The rest have been, have been taken away. And this is during the reign of King Hezekiah. You remember this? King Hezekiah of Judah. And the Assyrian army is under the leadership of Sennacherib. And they lay siege to Jerusalem. And this event is recorded for us in 2 Kings 19. And you see the marvelous way in which God delivered his people by a plague in one night. Listen to what happens in 2 Kings 19 verse 35 to 37. Now it happened that night that the angel of Yahweh went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. This, by the way, would mark the beginning of the end of the Assyrian Empire. You know who would take over after the Assyrians? Babylon would take over after the Assyrians. So tail between the legs, the king of the Assyrian army goes back. Listen to what it says. And the men arose early in the morning. So that tells you that not every single man was wiped out, including Sennacherib was not wiped out. But 185,000 of their army dead one night because of the angel of the Lord. Who's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? Our Lord Jesus is the pre-incarnate Christ. Our Lord is a Lord of battle and he fights for his people. And the men arose early in the morning, and behold, all of them were dead bodies, or around them was dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, set out and went away and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Now you'd think that Sennacherib would turn mightily to the Lord, right? And start to worship the Lord. Nope, wrong. Now it happened that as he was worshipping in the house of Nishrosh, his god, Adramelech and Shenezer, struck him down with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. We also see this spoken about in Isaiah 37 verse 36, the same story about the angel of the Lord who went out and struck 185,000 of the Assyrians. So this divine intervention of God in Hezekiah's day spares Jerusalem. And from there, Hezekiah has some of the greatest building feats of all of Israel's kings. Today, they are still discovering much of the architecture and the rebuilding and the ways in which God had blessed Hezekiah. And so Judah begins to be repopulated. From this time in 701 BC until 586 <coughs> Just over, well, then 84 years later, where we have the Babylonians that come in. So following this pivotal event, Babylon then emerges as a dominant force. In 586 BC, they conquer Judah. 
There were really three different raids. They took away first the royalty, then they destroyed the temple, then they destroyed the walls. And that's the same way that God would then rebuild Jerusalem over a period of 70 years. But we see this even in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 9 to 11, where it says, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares Yahweh, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. What is God saying about Nebuchadnezzar? That God actually is over him. So God has raised him up, just as God had raised up the Assyrians as his punishment of the northern tribes of Israel, so he raises up Nebuchadnezzar as his punishment towards the southern tribe of Judah. And there would have probably been some from the tribe of Benjamin that were also there at Jerusalem when God rescued them in 701 BC. I'll send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. And I will devote them to destruction and make them an object of horror and of hissing and an everlasting waste place. Moreover, I will make the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstone and the light of the lamp to perish from them. God telling them, I'm going to judge Jerusalem and Judah. So the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar destroy Jerusalem. And they exile the rest of the people of Israel away, including Judah, including Benjamin, if there was some of Benjamin there, to Babylon. And so Babylon takes over from the Assyrians and amidst the Assyrian Empire would have still been the exiles from the northern tribes of Israel, who would then be for a prolonged period in exile, along now with Judah that is joining them in exile. But that was marked to a 70-year period. Judah would be gone for 70 years. In Jeremiah 29 verse 10 it says, For thus says Yahweh, When 70 years has been fulfilled for Babylon, I will visit you and establish my good word to you to return you to this place. So God makes a promise that after all of this exile and the scattering of his people, he's going to bring them back. He's going to rebuild. The Medo-Persian Empire is the fulfillment of God's promise to bring back his people to the land. Where we have the fusion even of two empires, actually the Medes and the Persians, that happened as a result of marriage. The Medes were actually a smaller group, uh, the smaller empire. The Persians were the bigger empire. And when the king of the Persians married the daughter of the king of the Medes, then they joined together. And out of respect for the older king, they were named the Medes and the Persians. And that followed then the fall of Babylon or the Babylonian Empire, which actually began and really was most of the Babylonian Empire was crushed in 539 BC. So we're starting to get a bit closer to Zechariah's day. And this was prophesied about in Isaiah 44 verse 28. And this is just absolutely awesome to behold and to look at because we have Cyrus king of the Medes and the Persians, spoken about by name before he was even born. You can look with me at Isaiah 44 verse 28. Because I believe that Cyrus is part of those builders that we see in this. I want to piece it all together for you as we go, and I hope that it will make sense. Look at Isaiah 44 verse 28. 
This is before Cyrus is even born. Before the Medes and the Persians even existed as now a world entity. They still underneath. I mean, they still. This is before the Assyrians even take out the northern tribes of Israel. That's how far before this Isaiah is busy prophesying. He says, it is I who says to of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Isn't that amazing that God would speak about a pagan king in this way? That Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians, would be his shepherd. And all my good pleasure, he will complete. This king is going to be his servant for his good pleasure. And saying of Jerusalem, she will be built. What's he talking about here? He's speaking about this builder, Cyrus, that God would use and raise up as one that would terrify those armies and the empires before that had brought the scattering of Israel. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. When did the temple's foundation get laid? Underneath Cyrus. It stopped, sadly. But the foundation was laid because Cyrus sends them back. He sends Zerubbabel back and he sends Joshua back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Isn't God amazing? (laughs) Tells us this. Look at Isaiah 41 verse 1. Thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken hold of by his right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. This prophecy regarding Cyrus to Isaiah who lived in the 8th century BC, specifically prophesied about Cyrus, the king of Persia by name, approximately 150 years before Cyrus was even born. God speaking about the way that he's going to restore Israel and Jerusalem and Judah before they even are taken into captivity. So this remarkable prediction This prophecy to Isaiah just showcases the divine foreknowledge and also the sovereignty of God. He demonstrates to us in his word his ability to declare future events with precision, even by the very name of that king. Cyrus played such a significant role in historical events, including the fall of of Babylon. Now, he would conquer the Babylonian Empire. Babylon as a city would only fall under Darius, who took over from Cyrus. So there, I believe Darius is one of those second builders, because he sends back. And we're going to see some of that. So King Cyrus of Persia conquered the Babylonian Empire. And this event then paves the way for the decree that allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Look at Ezra 1, verse 1 to 4. Ezra 1, verse 1 to 4. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to complete the word of Yahweh from the mouth of Jeremiah, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. King of Persia. Can you just picture this for a moment? He's in his first year of reigning. 
And the Spirit of God stirs up the heart of Cyrus. Because God promised. Because God is faithful. Because God always does what God says he's going to do in all of history. So that he had a proclamation passed throughout all his kingdom. And also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has, he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in, Judea, in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So everyone who remains at whatever place he may sojourn, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? So God stirs up and about 50,000 return. And when they return, Cyrus doesn't force every single person that is a Jew to go back. He says, if you want to remain where you're sojourning, then at least give them silver and gold and a freewill offering. Send them so that they can rebuild. You don't, want to, you don't want to go back? Fine. You don't have to. But then enable those that decide to. Don't stand in their way. And so there Zerubbabel answers that call in the lineage of King David, in the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ, along with, jo uh, along with Joshua the high priest. And they go back with about 50,000. And guess what they start doing? They start the foundations of the temple as prophesied by God. So this act of restoration is such a testament of God's faithfulness, of his mercy. Even after this period of exile and despair, I mean more than 140 years, if you take going back all the way to, to the Assyrians destroying the, the top part, of Israel and then coming down all the way in that prolonged 19 year campaign as they just ravage and destroy and God puts an end to the Assyrians and then God brings the Babylonians against Judah. God's over this. So this is such a vital point as now Zechariah comes back, the foundations have been laid, they've just re-begun the building. But they downcast. They, they downhearted. They'd returned to the land. But they needed to return to the Lord. That was more important than the physical land. They needed to return to the Lord with full vigor so that they could get on with this building project that God had called them to in rebuilding the temple. Foundations laid. But now they've got to build. So Cyrus the Great in 539 B.C., strategically diverted even the Euphrates River. He did that amazingly, and his forces were able to conquer the Babylonians. But then you have Darius after Cyrus, actually Darius called Darius the Great after Cyrus's death in around 516 BC. Darius faces various challenges, 
both internally and externally during his rule, but he then is able to conquer Babylon itself, and he comes in, you remember the writing on the wall, and that marks the absolute end of the Babylonians. They actually have such terror at the fact that that Darius is coming in. And so you've got Daniel. And then in the second year of of Darius, Daniel's praying. Third year, you have Zechariah. This is the point where we're at. So his vision, these four horns are spoken of in the past tense. I told you to mark that as we even read it. Look again at verse 19. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. So I do believe that within the context of what we're speaking about here, this is either four empires or I believe even stronger case is four kings. It's speaking about the four kings that were Pivotal in the scattering of Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. If we take it as four kingdoms, now that's where a lot of commentators go. Some Most commentators speak about the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians as one, and then they speak about the Romans. But I think that's a stretch too far. Why? Because the Romans is future. Whereas this is speaking about past. It's speaking clearly about them having been scattered and then speaking about four um, craftsmen that are part of the rebuilding and the restoration period. So if we take it that way, then we would say that there's four kings that were involved in the destruction and there's four kings involved in the rebuilding. But you could also say four kingdoms and then you could say maybe four people. And if you're taking four people, then you would take people like Joshua, the high priest, Zerubbabel, um, Ezra, Nehemiah. But I think that it's a stretch too far to take those four people because what we see is that these four rebuilders as such actually caused terror to the four that had come before. And it would seem that those four are actually kings that we can speak about in a moment. So the four kings, who are they? Who are the four kings that brought about the destruction of Israel, of Judah, and of Jerusalem? Well, Tiglath-Pileser III in 745 BC to 727 BC, Tiglath-Pileser III was a king of Assyria who initiated the depopulation of the northern tribes of Israel in 722 BC leading to the scattering of the ten northern tribes. He was succeeded by Sennacherib in 705 to 681 BC. And Sennacherib was another powerful Assyrian king who laid siege to Jerusalem in 701 BC. So there was a changeover from Tiglath-Pileser III to Sennacherib who took over from him as the king of the Assyrians and he continued the campaign against God's people coming down and wiping out most of Judah taking them into captivity in 701 BC and this is the Sennacherib that we read about earlier on with 185,000 of his troops that died and so during his reign which was also during the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah his campaign was thwarted by God. We then also have King Necho, the the second. Now, who was he? Well, he was a pharaoh. He was part of the Egyptian empire. And he waged war also against Israel and against Judah. 
in 610 BC to 595 BC. Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, defeated King Josiah in a very important place. Do you remember the place's name? Megiddo. In that valley of Megiddo, there was a battle there before we have Armageddon, which will be in Megiddo. And we have the defeat of King Josiah, who was a godly king. Some were even wondering if Josiah was the promised Messiah. Is this finally the Messiah? Remember how the word of the Lord had even disappeared? It had actually gotten lost in the temple that they started to fix up. And then they realized, hold on a minute here. Here's God's word. And there's great revival underneath Josiah. But Necho II comes in. And Josiah is killed in battle at Megiddo in 609 BC resulting in Josiah's death and even his actions of Necho leads towards that future destruction. He's involved in the regional political destruction of the people of Israel. And then you have Nebuchadnezzar in 605 to 562 BC. And so Nebuchadnezzar, and actually Nebuchadnezzar II, the powerful king of Babylon, destroys Jerusalem and the first temple in 586 BC. And this event marked the end of the kingdom of Judah. Just a couple of years after the death of Josiah, and brings about the captivity and this pivotal point of the Jewish history. So I believe that that is the closest to the four horns as far as the historical context of kings that were pivotally involved in the destruction of Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. Now, who would raise up after that? And, and some debate happened even in my own mind and Maxine asked me this morning, how was your, how did you sleep? I told her that I had these moments of, uh, oh, and, uh, oh. So I had some moments like that while sleeping last night and, and, and restless and thinking through this. It could be that the first craftsman actually is Nebuchadnezzar who would be that fourth horn. So because it would seem that he turns towards the Lord. Remember what happens as he's walking out on, on his balcony and he looks over Babylon and he says, look at how great this is. God humbles him for three years. And what happens after that three-year period? He sends out a declaration to all his land about who the God of heaven is. And it's the God of the Jews. And so the Jews are protected underneath Nebuchadnezzar. So it could be that the first craftsman that's actually part of the turning back, in a sense, and God's plan of now starting to look after his people. And you remember that Daniel was with Nebuchadnezzar. So was Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And the Jews actually were protected by Nebuchadnezzar in the end. Even though he started off so wrathfully, it's as though God turned his heart. And God starts to use Nebuchadnezzar. Sadly, his son, Belteshazzar, was not as, as righteous as his father, Nebuchadnezzar. And that marks the end of the Babylonian captivity when Darius comes in. But before Darius comes in, we've already got Cyrus on the scene conquering the Babylonian Empire. But Babylon itself falls underneath Darius. So I believe that it, we could have Nebuchadnezzar being the first craftsman, and then the second craftsman being, being Cyrus, the third craftsman being Darius, and then 
Artaxerxes the next, send in Nehemiah later on. So we'll look at that just in a moment and I'll give you some other thoughts to that as well. So let's look then at the craftsman, verse 20 and 21. The point is, God was over the destruction. He allowed this and God is over the restoration. And the point of that is so that the people in Zechariah's day would trust God. And why should they trust God? Well, God is faithful. So they can obey him. So that they can get busy with the work that God had told them to be busy with. That's the message for you and I. Whether or not this king is the horn or that king is the builder, I'm giving you what I believe is the most accurate according to the context. But the major point is, dear Christian, you can trust him today. He's over all things. Look at verse 20 and verse 21. Then Yahweh showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. So it's almost as though he's got the horns there and he's got the craftsmen. But these craftsmen. So there's the horns that bring about the scattering. But these craftsmen have come to cause them, these horns, these four horns, these nations even, represented by those four kings, to tremble. To throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter them. So there it would show you that this isn't just people groups. I do believe these horns are four kings. But underneath these four kings are nations that hate Israel. And these nations cause their horns to stand up against him. That's the kings of the earth that take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, Psalm 2. Same kind of principle. They raise up their leaders, and one of the ways that they even choose their leaders is their hatred towards Israel. And you see this even with the rebuilding process. You've always got this, we've always got the Sanballats and the Tobias, which were people groups underneath these conquered people groups. And you've got them sending letters and getting them to stop the rebuilding, which actually, by the way, happened with Artaxerxes II, where he stops the rebuilding of, of Jerusalem. And 13 years later, you've got him sending a decree by Nehemiah's hand, who was his cupbearer, to rebuild. So you've got the four craftsmen. God reveals four craftsmen skilled agents of his judgment, in particular, his judgment on those four horns. He would actually cause those four horns and the nations underneath those four horns to tremble. Why? Because God's going to rebuild Jerusalem. Because God is not dethroned. So these craftsmen were instruments in God's hand, poised to counter the oppressive forces that represented the horns. Their presence illustrates God's active intervention in the affairs of mankind and in particular for his people Israel. And let me ask you, is God not the same God today, even over Israel? So what's the purpose of the craftsman? In this intricate vision, the craftsman emerge as this profound representation of God's justice and retribution and restoration of his people Israel. These skilled workers were not merely individuals of earthly talents. They were divine agents underneath God, hand-picked to represent and to respond to the oppressive horns that had afflicted God's people for generations. 
So whether we interpret this as historical kingdoms or specific nations or specific kings, the point is that God's over it and God has it covered. They symbolize even those horns, that oppressive power, but these craftsmen as those that now would come to bring about retribution and the rebuilding. I believe that the best contextual interpretation of these, and I did mention to you that it could be somebody like Nehemiah being the first, and uh, not Nehemiah, um, getting myself nicely, Nebuchadnezzar, there we go, all these N names, Nebuchadnezzar, that he could have been the first, but I do think that that's probably off. Why? Because these four craftsmen caused the other four, the four horns to tremble. And those four horns representing all those nations that had scattered Israel. So I, I think that an even more accurate look at this would be first builder being Cyrus. As we looked at as he was prophesied by God. And we talked about him being the shepherd that would even himself send to start rebuilding. And that's why I think Cyrus would be the best first builder even above Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar never started rebuilding. You have a starting point of the rebuilding project, and that's under Cyrus, as the foundations are built. And Cyrus ruled from 559 to 530 BC. In 538 BC, so that's about eight years before Cyrus's end. Okay, And who would take over from Cyrus? Darius. So Cyrus, eight years before the end of his reign, sends the people back to go and rebuild. They start with the foundations, which was a huge project. Somehow the pressures and the world pressures, which actually caused, I mean, Darius, when he inherited the kingdom from Cyrus, there were huge pressures. The kingdom was almost falling apart. And he was already an older man. He was 62 when he takes over from Cyrus. But he is a wise king and he brings about restoration once more. And it's two years after him or three years after his reign that you have Zechariah on the scene. So this is a number of years later. Almost 16 years passes before the temple starts getting rebuilt again. So in 538 BC, Cyrus issues a decree allowing the Jews to return. And that's what we saw in Ezra chapter 1. And to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was completed in 516 BC, or rather the, yes, the temple re was finished. So you have 516 BC, the temple is complete. What happens between 520 and 516? Zechariah, they restart the temple. And four years after the prophecies, like this prophecy that we're busy reading today, they complete the work. In 516 BC, during the reign of Darius I. So the second craftsman, I believe, contextually and within what we're looking at, is Darius I. He ruled from 522 to 486 BC. And he supported the completion of the temple in 516 BC. Most likely with a wise man like Daniel next to him. Isn't it amazing how you've got this conquering king... Of the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, that dethrones finally the son of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, the city Babylon, 
and he starts to rule there and he doesn't put to death all the wise men. He takes Daniel and he sets him up as one of the three. You start to see how God was so intricately involved in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So he was supportive of this. I believe the second great builder. Then we have Artaxerxes I, who ruled from 465 to 424 BC. This is the grandson of Darius. I believe the third builder. He was the son of Xerxes I. He later sent Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem around 445 BC which aligns with the prophecy of the craftsmen and the overthrowing of the oppressive powers as mentioned in Zechariah's vision. Now, something that has brought me a bit of a wondering is with these four builders that are spoken about. And I don't quite know who the fourth one is. So that's why I was thinking, well, maybe it could have been, you know, um, Nebuchadnezzar. But I think in the context, we have to speak about Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, I believe, is that fourth king, and he's involved with this. He goes back, and he is the rightful king of the line of David and in the line of Christ our Lord. And he is involved with this rebuilding project. He is there for the laying of the foundations of the temple. He is there for the building of the temple. He is a pivotal figure alongside Men like Ezra, like Joshua the high priest. And he sets the stage even for the the completion of the city walls. It's under his protection that the people of Israel and under his leadership that the people of Judah and Jerusalem were still there and in existence during the time of Nehemiah. So I believe that the fourth king very likely can be Zerubbabel. But these four kings would bring down the horns. They would bring down the nations that were raging against the people of Israel. They would terrify them because there is a God in Israel. And they would signify the overthrowing oppressive powers and the establishment then of justice. What an awesome storyline to go and study. Now we, a couple of years after that, That's why it becomes a bit difficult and history becomes a bit hazy and we look back at this. The point is God speaks about these four horns that scattered. And then God speaks about four builders that rebuilt. And the point to the people in Zechariah's day, return to the Lord. You can trust him. And then guess what? Build. 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 You've got a job to do. Get up. And build. Do what God has called you to do. Because the temple needs to be rebuilt. God is the God of his covenant towards his people Israel. And he's got a promise. There is a coming Messiah. You need to get busy with this temple. Because the Messiah is coming. We need to get busy with rebuilding the walls. We need to get busy with repopulating Judah. Because there's a Messiah coming. Israel needs to be reestablished in the land. Because there's a Messiah coming. God is faithful to his promises. And you can, in believing faith, lay a brick on top of a brick. You can do what you call to do. Be faithful to your God. Because he's faithful to you. God has got it covered. He is the God of all of their history. 
Whether it's 140 plus years of destruction and captivity and the 70 years of rebuilding because it takes about 70 years from the laying of the foundation to the building of the wall in Nehemiah's day. About 70 years passes. I mean, just think about that for a moment. You've got the grandson of Darius sending Nehemiah. But God is over this. He's over all those intricate moments. He's over all of the raising up of this king and the pulling down of that king and the putting up of this king and the pulling down of that king. And he's over today. He's over 2023. He's over 2024 already. He's God. Nothing has taken him by surprise. Do you not think that he knows your worries? He knows your anxieties. He knows the things that are weighing you down. He knows the troubles in your life that you can come to him and trust him. Of course you can trust him. I mean, this is just mind-blowing. And I've only given you such a small piece of this. Time would not even be able to give enough time to go and look at the ways in which every single date correlates with another date. And I mean, it's just mind-blowing. Just thinking about it, you can hardly sleep on Saturday night because you're about to preach about it. The coming Messiah was to come. God is faithful to his promises. He rebuilds. Think about the things that have been destroyed by your sin in your life. You don't think that Jesus can restore you? He's the God of the rebuilding. He's the God of the rebuild. He's the God of the second chance. Has he not saved you in Christ? Has he not given you enough of his Holy Spirit to put to death that sin that is still ravaging you? Of course he has. Can't you trust him today, dear Christian? Of course you can trust him. He's God. He's absolutely powerful. He's absolutely faithful. Why are you so scared? Why are you so anxious? Why are you so worried? Why are you so heavy laden? Why are you so downtrodden? Why are you lackadaisical? Why are your knees no longer strong and your arms strong to work for this God? That's part of what the author of the book of Hebrews speaks about. Remember what he says? Strengthen that which is weak in you. Have you started to give up in your day? Starting to get too worried about all of the affairs of life that you've started to become paralyzed in your service of the Lord? Well, then this message by the Holy Spirit is for you just like it was for the people of Zechariah's day. Get up. Shake the dust off. Get rid of the sin that clings to you and those things that are weighing you down and run the race that is set before you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Do it for his glory. You're called to be those builders in our day. He raised up those four builders back then, but you are called co-laborers with Christ. Did you know that, Christian? You have the same Holy Spirit inside of you who raised Jesus from the dead. This is the power with which we live today. We are called to be builders. We are called to be those that stand against the forces of the evil one in this world that seek to kill, steal, destroy. And we have one message. We have a conquering Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a captain of our soul and he marches before us. We are those that march in the victory throng because Jesus has conquered every single enemy. And we are more than conquerors through him. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what are you downcast about? Why are you dragging your feet? Why are you not busy with what he's called you towards? And you know what he's called you towards? The Great Commission. 
which is a commission to a building project where Jesus is busy building his church and he says, I want you to partner with me. Come and be a partner with me in reconciliation. You know what reconciliation means? It means building up that which was broken down. That's a message for you and I. That's the message of the Holy Spirit to you today. It's to get on board with God's program in this world. And if you don't, he'll still do it and you'll miss out. He's God over all. But you're called to be responsible underneath him. And you're called to today live for his glory. How are you living, dear Christian? Are you so busy with trying to build up things that are going to fade? You know, this world is going to absolutely be destroyed. Not by the floods like Noah's day. It will be destroyed by fire. Are you busy putting all your effort into stuff that will fade? I mean, who really cares who won the World Cup? Sorry if I'm trampling on an idol. Who really cares? Is that lasting? Who really cares about how good you are at this or that? How amazing your business is doing or how badly your business is doing. What really matters is the eternal souls of men and women which are worthy more than even all of the universe. And we've got a job to do. We best get busy with it. Our God is faithful. Isn't that marvelous? He's so faithful. That gives you a bounce in your step. Oh, well, we're always going to have the sand balance. We're always going to have the Tobites. We're always going to have the hating Hamans. We're always going to have opposition. But the Christian in faith in Jesus Christ is able to say, well, bring it on, I'll stand. And I want to hear those words one day. I don't know about you, dear Christian. I want to hear those words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Good, faithful servant. Good, you got to put off that sin. Faithful, you got to listen to his voice. Servant, you're his bond slave. You belong to him who purchased you with the precious, precious price of the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the message of the four horns and the four craftsmen? You can trust Jesus today. You can trust God. He's over all the things that we're facing in our world. Nothing has taken him by surprise. We've already died with Christ. And we're the ones that live in Christ. So come what may, we've got a mission that we've been commissioned towards. And you know what's so precious about the Great Commission? It's not the fact that we've actually been told to go and make disciples of all nations. That is great. I mean, praise God that we've been called to be co-laborers with him. You know what's even greater than that? Is that when we do that, he's with us. He's with us. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. It would seem, I don't know about what you think, but it would seem we're getting pretty close to the end of the age. But guess who's still with us? Our faithful Lord. Our faithful Lord. Let's get busy with this building project. It's closing a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you so much 
for a brief look in this passage at the history of Israel, the ways in which nations rose up with kings that hated your people and scattered them, but then you also raised up kings and rebuilders. We thank you for men like Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest and Ezra the scribe and and Nehemiah the cupbearer to a king. Lord, you had it all covered. You did the unimaginable with a world that at that time hated your people Israel, just like the world today hates your people Israel. It's this jealousy that all of those servants of Satan have over your people and your nation. Yet you are still God. Nothing has dethroned you. Even though all the kings of the earth will take counsel together against you, he who is sitting in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision. You are absolutely above all things, sovereign in your power, and none can thwart your plans. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here today. And Lord, each one is facing a different challenge in their own life. Each one have got different thoughts that they're going through. Each one have, have got their own trials and their own temptations unique to those individuals. But each one has also been called by you for a unique purpose in this body of believers at Benoni Bible Church for a time like this. And I pray that you would fill each heart, that you would change each heart that needs changing, that you would comfort those that are, have come this morning so convicted and so downcast, that you would bring about hope inside of their hearts that you would change them, O Lord, and challenge them and cause them to march onward as Christian soldiers following after you, the great general, the great commander of the armies of heaven. Thank you that the Lord of hosts is with us, that you have not abandoned your purposes in our day and in our generation. Fill us with a grand hope, O Lord, and cause our hands to be made strong to work for your glory, to build in this marvelous project of building the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for souls. We pray for the people in our lives that we interact with Monday through to Saturday. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us a boldness, that we would share the marvelous gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is one who has been accepted by the Father on our behalf. There is one who paid the penalty that our sinners deserved at that cruel cross. There is a one who rose victorious from the grave. There is a one that has given us hope when we were hopeless, that has given us help when we were helpless, that is the one that satisfies our souls. And I do pray, Lord, that if there be any listener this morning that has been sitting, listening, that has heard the gospel week after week, and yet has not yet turned to you, that in their folly like a Sennacherib are still worshipping at idols' temples, that you would convict their hearts, break them, Lord Jesus, so that you might build them up upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and his word. Cause them, O Lord, to be turned from their wicked ways, Convict their hearts of their wicked ways, for many of them may think that they are right with you. Cause them, even this moment, O Lord, to be broken, so that you might build them up. Thank you that you are the great rebuilder, that you're the one that brings about redemption, that you're the one that brings about reconciliation. 
You're the one that brings about forgiveness of the soul so that the soul might forgive in return. Please remove from us, O Lord, the sin that so easily clings to us and any hindrance that weighs us down from running this race that you have set before us. O Lord, please, we beg of you, Spirit of God, please fill your people here at Benoni Bible Church. Cause a revival to break out amongst us that we might love you with a passionate love and serve you all the days of our lives. That we might, O Lord, be faithful to you, the great God who has been faithful to us. Thank you, O Lord, that you are sovereign in your faithfulness over all the generations of mankind. We think of where our fathers may have been at that time, amongst the nations of the world. And yet you still had a plan even for us in 2023. We praise you, Lord. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of your ancient people, Israel, and we pray for the salvation of Israel. We know, O Lord, that there is a coming day when they will look upon him whom they pierced and they will turn from their wicked ways, that they will recognize the Lord Jesus Christ as the sovereign Lord and the answer to all of the promises, that they will recognize that the Messiah that they have spurned, the Messiah that they have turned away from in a stubborn, stiff-necked way, that he is the Lord indeed. And so we do pray for the salvation of Israel. We pray that you will continue to guard your people, guard your church, O Lord, even there. In Gaza, guard the Christians. Guard the Christians in Jerusalem. Guard the Christians in Israel. Guard the Christians amongst the Arab nations. O Lord, we pray that you would do a marvelous work in our day and that you would cause us to simply put one foot in front of the other, being faithful to our great God who has given us our marching orders. We thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.